Radio Richard. Hi, I'm Richard Niles, and welcome to Radio Richard. Pete Waterman produced and co-wrote over 200 hit singles in the 1980s. While most critics dismissed the music as worthless, the public, who bought many million records, and Pete Waterman's bank manager knew the exact worth of it. Was the music formulaic? Yes, but that could be said for much of pop. Was it tuneful and danceable? Absolutely. Did it accurately reflect the dress-up-and-dance, showing-out, loads-of-money spirit of the 1980s? Oh, yes, indeed. The production team of Stock, Aitken, and Waterman used the new technology of the 1980s to make a string of contagious hits from many pop artists, including Kylie Minogue, I Should Be So Lucky, Better the Devil You Know, Jason Donovan, Mel and Kim, Showing Out, Respectable, Bananarama, Love in the First Degree, I'm Your Venus, and Rick Astley. Astley's warm baritone voice gave Stockaken and Waterman rare transatlantic success, with two number ones in America, including Never Gonna Give You Up. So here's the second part of my interview with the man who said he had Woolworth's ears, Pete Waterman. How the use of technology can support or hinder the melody. Well, you know, technology, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky. You know, when I started, I always wanted to make American records. I mean, they were the records that I loved as a kid, listening to American Forces Network. You know, America was this amazing country in the 50s. You know, they had Levi jeans, Rickenbacker guitars. You know, they had the, they had the lot. And uh, they had the best airplanes. And so if you were into music, as I was into, you know, uh, their records, the Buddy Holly records and all that stuff, to me, were in a class of their own. Absolute class of their own. Um, the one thing that made them in a class of their own was the drummers. All American drummers were the dogs do They were brilliant. You didn't, you didn't really notice they were there, but they were there, and they were strident. And when I started to try and make records here, you just realise then what the difference was because the drummers, the American drummers, the actual players themselves were a different class. They were just old-fashioned big band drummers that played a solid beat straight down the middle, didn't muck about, and they were brilliant at it. And what we were trying to compete with, uh, those drummers, particularly sort of post-Beatles, 64, 65, was young guys trying to play like Americans, but without the technique, because most of those great drummers had had 10, 15 years grinding in military bands. and I mean, they were just brilliant drummers. You know, people like Bernard Purdy, I mean, these guys are God. Um, and there we were, Keith Moon, as a great drummer f- for what he does, but to try and make records that people sang on, like that we make, you know, they dominated. They just didn't support, they dominated. Mm. So um, I remember going to a music shop. Yeah, this was about 19, whew, I suppose 78, 79, and looking at a Roland drum machine. And I thought, here is heaven. Here it is. And I remember I made a couple of records, but it had a very unique sound, the Roland drum machine. I mean, it was a drum machine. That's what it was. Um, and then I remember going to a shop, and a guy said, we just got this new machine in, Pete, um, designed by a guy called Lynn, Roger Lynn. And it's, it's, it's a drum machine, but it uses real samples. And I remember it was a lot of money. It was about £6,000, I think. And Trevor Horn had bought one, and I bought one. 
we went in the studio and we were doing a rockabilly record, which is nothing to do with melody, I know, but now rockabilly records are all about drummers. And suddenly I had this drum machine that could play a rockabilly record exactly like Carl Perkins. I mean, exactly. It wasn't an English guy trying to play Carl Perkins. This was Carl Perkins. Because as long as you could program it, it would not vary from what you programmed. It just would play straight through. So it became totally subliminal. For, for the first time, you didn't have to worry about the drummer. Mm. And certainly for Stock Aitken Waterman, the, the Lynn drum machine, and I used to put myself down on the session sheets as a Lynn, um, and I'm still a member, a musician's member as a Lynn, um, we worked out that the one musician that we could not control was the drummer. And if we got the drummer right, the rest we could work with. The rest we could sit and talk to, as long as the rhythm was absolutely rock solid. You know, the bass we could work with, all that. And then when Roger Lynn bought out the Lynn 9000, which meant that the, the, the actual drum machine then drove all the sequences, well, it was all over. Because then we didn't need... We, because, you know, uh, Spin Me Around, for instance, it's all step programmed. I mean, it's, it took us five days to program every one of those notes in. Mm. Well, suddenly here we've got um, uh, a drum machine where you literally, it, it sequenced everything. You just, you know, put the program in and then, woof, off you went. It played all your instruments. Mm. I mean, that Lin 9000, and we went um, to France and found a guy called, uh, I think it was Roger Publisson. Uh-huh. And... Uh, he, he invented for us, because, you know, we were cutting-edge producers at the time. Everybody forgets that Stock Aiken Waterman were perceived to have this computer, you know, and what we were doing was running around the world buying technology. You know, somebody, you know, you'd hear a rumour that this guy's... Because everybody forgets, but when we started, spin me round, sampling was 0.7 of a second. That's all you could do. And what we did, we got AMS, a guy at AMS Neve in the reverbs he perfected he pirated a piece of the software and we got two seconds now two seconds now is a joke but for us you could sample two seconds at the time it was unbelievable so we spent a lot of time running around um, looking for new technology and we found this French guy who gave us 15.2 seconds of sampling before anybody else that was a major change because what that meant was the singer could come in and sing one chorus. They never sung it again. We just flew it in every time because it was, it was pure quality. We didn't need to worry. So if you take Cliff Richard, for instance, we just took Cliff Richard and we actually made the song up without him singing the song. He never sang the song. We literally made the whole thing up by moving it around in the Puma song and putting it where we wanted you know, I mean, people laugh now when you say 15.6 seconds. My Christ, you can get like 30 hours of sampling, but not then. And this was all um, trying to work out to keep everything in time. You could not, there was no such thing as auto-tune. I mean, there wasn't auto-tune in those days. So you couldn't, if a, if a singer was flat, you literally had to drop in that note. You couldn't, you know, tune it up on an auto-tune. Uh, well, and I, and I think, you know, that, that one of the problems with technology, I think we've gone too far now, because I can't listen to some records because all I can hear is the auto-tune. I mean, you know, the, if you listen to the share record, which is all auto-tune, which is a great idea, they use the auto-tune as a gimmick. That's fantastic. I ain't got a problem with that. But now, 
you know, a lot of these young records, they are just all auto-tune, and I can't listen to it because you can... It sounds horrible. I mean, they don't go on to be hits, thanks, gods. You know, but um, I don't mind a gimmick, but, you know, you can't... Everybody can't use it because it's not a gimmick anymore. Let me ask you this question because uh, you're the guy to answer it. We've talked about technology and just the, that last point you made uh, about the certain records aren't hits because of technology, and yet a lot of records are. Now, there's been a, a, a lot of stuff happening in what I'd call, I guess, the last five years of, or maybe more, ten years of pop, where pop has become very um, formulized uh, to a great extent. Now, the thing about your records is they weren't, Ever, you know, each record was different, even though there was a formula. The, the melodies were so strong, the tunes were so strong, and and the ideas of the songs. Uh, there's a, there's a feeling that because of technology, records have become formulized in their sound, and also uh, in terms of artists, uh, you know, record sales have have sort of dropped over the last ten years, uh, very drastically, and the public is slightly turning off because there aren't those artists full of great personality. Now, I don't know what your overview on that is, but it would be interesting to hear it. It's a big subject. Um, one of the problems, uh, because, you know, and I don't wish to sound 60 years old, but Please I'm do. going to. I have a Jewish story. And if you're Jewish, you all know what chicken soup does. Chicken soup cures broken legs, rheumatoid arthritis, potency. It is the magic substance your mother gives you. When you're running from school, your nose is streaming chicken soup. I never understood it, but apparently it does procure everything. Well, music is like chicken soup. It's exactly like chicken soup. If you're sad, you play a song, it makes you happy. If you're happy, you play a song, it makes you sad. Because it's chicken soup. It's a, it, it does everything you want it to do. Right. But chicken isn't chicken soup if there's no chicken in it. So when you write a song or make a record, there must be a certain amount of chicken in the soup, OK? If you nick the song off somebody else, you then have to, by the fact of what you're doing, you must start to put more water in and less chicken because you can't nick the other person's melody completely. So if you keep watering the soup down... In the end, you have no chicken, it's just water. And water becomes absolutely just tasteless. And what has happened, certainly over these last six years, is so many people have nicked so many people's songs that had already taken the chicken out that the public don't believe it anymore. I mean, you know, it's like I hear records now and the lyric does not make sense to me. And I spent... Two years in Scandinavia working with uh, Scandinavian writers before I just, in the end, said I can't do this anymore. Where they didn't understand that the lyric matters. Because they think it's the sound of the lyric that's important. And every time you want to hear these records, they don't make any sense. You know, great, you know Westlife are great, they look great, and melody's all right. But the lyrics don't make any common sense. So you're watering down and down and down the intensity of that song. And at the end, the public don't believe it anymore. You know, so particularly in, in the R&B field for the last five years, they, above everybody else, have watered it down to the point where it's puerile. I mean, it's just gone sterile. And that's unfortunately because 
they really do want the same record every single time. You know, they don't want to reinvent the wheel at all. Mm. Once they find a formula, they want to kill it till it, you know this is the the American television, the American radio. Once you've got the formula, you go with it till it collapses. Mm. Well, the truth is, it collapses very quickly. Mm. You know, and and a music that has really been the chicken, if you want, for a long time, has become now just the water. Because you could always rely on R&B records to do something slightly different. I mean, Jam and Lewis, for instance, were great melody writers and great producers, and they always added something extra. I always remember meeting uh, Terry, and, and we knew they were listening to our records because we could hear our chords in there. But they knew we were listening to their records because they could hear our, our rhythms, you know. And quite often, I always remember Terry saying to me on, on a, a Janet Jackson record, this is the closest we've ever got to Stock Aitken Waterman. We probably didn't get any closer because we'd probably lose a lot of our fans. And I remember, because I remember we did Princess Sammy Number 1, which is just pure Jam and Lewis. And this guy ran me up and said, this record is utterly brilliant. You know, everybody thinks it sounds like us. It doesn't. It sounds like us, but there's none of us in it. The chords aren't ours, the melody's not ours, the ethos is ours, but you've done it in a completely different way that we know we would have never done it this way. So we kept the chicken in. And, and you know, that takes thought, that takes experience. And I go back to what I said earlier. I had the 40s and 50s, Mike had the 60s and 70s, Matt had the 70s and 80s. You know, that's that broad experience Spence, where you can go, how did that arranger do that? How did Phil Spetzer get round that problem? How did George Martin get round that problem? How did, you know, Tom Bell get round that problem? Because we've all, you all get the same problems every single time. Mm. And I think my greatest uh, enjoyment is, uh, I remember Paul McCartney remember one day and said, I know where you spotted that, where you nicked that from. I said, well, it's only where you nick what's the name from. You're quite right. <laughs> <laughs> but you listen to the... And I tell these stories and people go, it sounds nothing like it. Mm. Of course it sounds nothing like it. If it sounds like it, you've stolen it. Exactly. I didn't say I stole a melody. I said I stole the idea. Mm. You then have to make it your idea. Mm. If you look at um, books, they're books about love, books about hate, books about war, books about peace. And that's it. But there's hundreds of thousands of books written out there we all read and love. But they're all basically the same story with different heroines. It's you've got to make yours personal to you. What people now don't seem to want to do is they don't want to do the work to make it their own. The other thing, samplers, you see, have made it so much easier. They just nick pieces of records. You know, people just... Now, sometimes that... I, I, let's go on thing. I do like that as a technology, and I do like that as an art form. I love that cutout, you know, our part. I love it. And I don't mind people nicking parts of my song and making it into another... I haven't got a problem with that. But you can't have all of them like that, and I can't stand the way they nick, you know, obvious songs, and you just go, oh, no, please, not again. I mean, Simon, my dear friend Simon Cowell, you know, sometimes he, he drives me to, you know, to, to destruction sometimes. He must have, you know, done the Righteous Brothers song that many times 
The writers must have Simon Cowell tattooed on every wall in their house. He is a songwriter's dream, Simon. I mean, he's recorded that uh, song, Unchained Melody, about four times and they've all sold a million. God, the songwriters must love Simon. <laughs> but, you know, that's I'm always looking to write my own Unchained Melody. Probably never will, well, you know, and I'm not that arrogant. But if you don't try, you're not going to achieve it. You've got to wake up. I mean, Mike and I have just got back together after 10 years. And I'll tell you what, you try and write a song with somebody you wrote with the song 10 years ago. And that's hard work. Mm. That is hard work. Because mm. the discipline you have to do. And, um, you know, I, we've done this, would you believe, on a telephone. Mm. So I turn up at the studio, only doing this on a telephone, and... I mean, Mike and I are best mates. I mean, you know, I mean, we, we, we didn't fall out. We just didn't work together for 10 years, but we didn't hate each other and there was no animosity. It just, our businesses went different way. But I went down to the studio and uh, he got, because Mike always teaches the singers the song and the tracks on and We always use the worst tracks, by the way, in the world. We always make the track very simple for the singers. So, in fact, we do the opposite from what I've said we do. We don't support the singers at all when we record the song. We make them p perform, and then we put it the, produ the, pr the production around them. So we, we've always got bump bap bump bap bump bap. I mean, it's, it's so simple. It's banal when we get the singer. So I knew I was about to hear a very simple, simple track. And Mike went through the routine with the artist and said, look, forget the track. It's just a melody. I'm going to teach you the melody. And I, I remember Mike started... And he just said, da, 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 da. And I just went, no, don't tell me. Please go, da, 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 da. And I, saw, I, I just mentally sat there and thought, that's all I want this melody to do now. That's all I want. And it did. It just went exactly where and I went, I'll see you later. He said, don't you want to hear it? I said, I've heard it. He said, we may have heard it. Of course you ain't heard it. I said, Mike, we've written 30 of these. <laughs> he went... You reckon? <laughs> Mike, it's ex it does exactly what it says on the tin. It's got melody. I know where the melody's going. It's a quirky title. It's absolutely youthful. It makes you smile. That's what we always did. That's what we've got to set out to do. We can't do anything else. And it's that knowing where the melody goes. Yeah. It's knowing that it's going to go where you expect it to go. And the surprise is the way it goes there with the honesty that it goes there. That's, that's I guess, you know, the point. Yeah. Um, to uh, me, a great song always goes where you think it's going to go and it always pays you off in the end of the day. Yeah, I, I, I had the uh, experience of uh, arranging Better the, the Devil You Know for Kylie's show. Right, I did right. a big band jazz version of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I love yeah, it. Yeah, so, so, you know, it just shows that a great melody, as I've always said, that is can be arranged yeah, that is many, melody. many different ways and still work just as well. That, that song is a very interesting song because that um, Better Than Ever You Know, of course, is, is a nick. And it's a nick of one of our own songs, um, <laughs> which <laughs> it's a very funny story, but we had written Roadblock and... Um, Another well-known uh, writer, Kathy Dennis, had nicked Roadblock and had a hit with it herself. So rather than sue, we nicked it back. <laughs> and, and, and that's where, that's where it came from. Better than ever you know. Ooh, 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 Roadblock. Better than ever you know. That's what it is. It's just, it was a, a thumb, a, a finger up in the air to say, we're watching, and you ain't good enough to stick, well, pinch one of our melodies without a spot in it. <laughs> but if you can do it, watch what we do to you, we'll take it back. That's what that was. And I always remember 
that wouldn't change a thing. Um, I remember hearing them at the end of the day and just thinking, this track is brilliant. This is, you know, you do 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 do. I just, I just knew, you know, it was just, it was what we did. And there's, there's the main melody, there's the counter melody, and then, and it lifts. It changes key into the chorus where we hadn't changed into the chorus for a long time. It was, it was just that shock. And I mean, you know, everybody forgets now because, of course, it's become the quintessential Kylie Minogue song that every fan in the world loves. She had had such an amazing run that people were waiting for it to fail. And that just kicked her into a different dimension because it was a different sort of record because it was, it was far more uh, dance than any other record she'd ever made before. The one thing with Kylie, she got such a great voice, we could write great melodies. I mean, Je ne sais pas pourquoi. I think that's one of the, the best songs we've ever written. And... Um, I've, I've, you know, quite a few people now are doing versions of, of, of Kylie's songs with just guitars, hand on your heart, which proves, you know, they are melodies. But they are melodies because we cared desperately about the melody. It wasn't just about the ricky-ticky and the, the warm length. The melody, you know, was there. There were all those counter-melodies, you know. The chords, when they came in, told you that there was a melody, mm. but then the singer sang the melody didn't let you down. And, of course, having... As you said, Kylie's voice was so great. It, I would guess, it's told you, hey, we're now free to write whatever we want because we know she can handle it. Yeah, and, and of course, when we got, because um, uh, when we got to Donna Summer, then we really did have a blank canvas. I mean, she could literally um, sing anything you gave her. And the great thing with Donna, Donna, working with Donna, she was the most undisciplined person I've ever met in my life. I mean, Donna had certainly didn't. Uh, rehearse anything. We, she didn't put anything on paper. She just went in the studio and performed. Well, not with Sokaki Waterman, she didn't. Hmm. I mean, this was a, a real eye-opener for her, that we would fight over one lyric. She couldn't understand why we would fight over a lyric or a, or a little piece of melody. She, she just did not get that. And I remember that we were all shocked um, this time on Earth for real. I mean, it, it shocked us. I mean, we... We knew it was good. We had no idea it was going on to be one of our biggest ever songs uh, worldwide. Um, and, you know, Donna wasn't sure about it, but she came back the next day. Her 17-year-old daughter had heard it and just gone bananas about it. We had a problem that Donna, of course, wasn't a, a young anymore. Um, she was frightened to sing love songs because she might be, you know, particularly in America, seen as too old. And I pointed out that Shakespeare wrote about death, but the actor didn't die, really. It's called acting, <laughs> you know. And I also remember her saying to me, that's a good enough excuse for me, I'm going to stick to it. Because she, she really did have a problem with singing youthful songs. Now, we didn't have a problem being 43-year-old men writing 16-year-old songs for girls. That, we had no problem at all. We've all been 16. And I, want, I also remember I was in the Miami Vice Hotel in uh, Miami, on a summer vacation, and I, I met this guy who, who outside the hotel had been waiting for me all day, a gay guy, and I came out, you know, um, and he didn't realise that I had children as I came out, and he went, oh, he said, I just love you. He said, you must have had the most tragic love life in the history of the world. <laughs> and I walked away, and I thought, huh? 
And then, of course, all my songs are about having broken hearts. And I sat there at night thinking, Christ, I must have had a tragic life here. And we actually, I remember in one of the songs, we actually used the line, you know, you must think I'm a tragic case, you know. Um, and, 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 and that's, I guess that was what I like about uh, music, particularly melody, is I love the pathos of melody. That, to me, is what works. For instance, uh, on um, Radio 4 recently, Desert Island Discs, I cried for 30 minutes. <sighs> this was a... A Polish-Jewish guy from uh, one of the concentration camps picked the most amazing music. And I look around the car. There's people in cars all around me, all crying. Now, he didn't pick sad songs. He didn't blame the, the Germans. In fact, the opposite. He picked the most hopeful songs. But, of course, he picked songs that have all got one thing on them. They're all personal. My Yiddish Mama, Havana Gila, and then the three tenors. Whoa. You just go, whoa. That's what music's about. It's about passion. It's about melody that can make you be emotional. It doesn't need a lyric. It's that, it's that melody that gets under your skin that says, I'm going to hurt you. Whop. That's what feeling's about. And that, to me, is what I've always tried to do, is get a melody that just twists... And you just know that when the singer is singing, you broke my heart. They bloody mean it. They mean that you hurt them. And the melody, even the singer, Rick Astley particularly, was brilliant at it. When he said he was never going to give you up, he didn't mind being hurt, you actually believed him. Because that's the way the melody made him sing it. It made him... I always remember sitting with Whitney Houston, funny enough, at a Hollywood Bowl, and she turned to me and she said, Oh, this man... I just want to cuddle him, because he was vulnerable. And we made the songs work to make you believe he was vulnerable. And uh, now that's what melody is to me. Mel melody is, is writing a song that makes people get goosebumps. It's not the lyric that makes them get goosebumps. It's the melody that makes them get goosebumps. You know, you can listen to Pomp, you know, Pomp and Circumstance by Elgar and you go rigid. You can listen to uh, the Enigma Variations on uh, Armistice Day, and if you don't cry, there's something wrong with you, or you're, you know, you don't understand the suffering of real uh, uh, devastation, which, of course, we did in the 40s and 50s. So, you know, I watch the Cenotaph, I listen to, the, the, you know, Nimrod, and it just says everything about the war to me, about the whole pain of war, the glory, the pain of it. And that's a piece of music. You know, if you hear Churchill, for instance... And you know the one, and I, I, I did this for somebody, and I said, "Look, listen to Churchill. We'll fight them on the beaches with Nimrod playing in the background, and then watch everybody's eye in the house." And I did this at a conference, and you saw people openly crying, and they went, "How did you know that?" I said, "Because these are the greatest words ever in the English language. They are desperate words. They said, boys, we're about to go down, but we'll give it one more push with a guy that's written a melody that rips your heart out." two absolutely two pieces of masterpieces put together you can't fail mm. 
it works, you know, because, I mean, if you listen to the way he delivers it, it it's, it's brutal honesty, you know. And, uh, and you listen to uh, Nimrod, and it, there's something about that. It's like um, the violin piece that everybody uses as well. Um, they are just brutally honest pieces of music. They're simplicity, but they are the most complex pieces of music when you, la- when you actually hear them, you know. Um, it's like the pearl fishes, isn't it? You know, we all, I mean, I didn't know what the pearl fishes was until one day I heard it on some radio station, but I'd heard it all my life. You know, I knew the piece of music. I had no idea what it was called, but I'd probably loved it since I was a kid from when I was pushing the record player around and around, <laughs> you know. But I'd never, I'd never, I didn't know what it was called. Mm. And then suddenly you hear it and you go, ah, that's what that melody is. Mm. And of course, you know, you, the, the, also, I mean, one thing we must, we mustn't ever, ever, ever take away our classical background. I mean, you know, and, and you know, we just said in the last five years it's changed, probably because classical music is no longer part of the national cu- curriculum at school. You're not made to listen to classical music. If you're black, you probably don't listen to mid-European classical music at all, um, which is a pity. Yeah. Because that's where it comes from. You know, that boy Beethoven. He learned. He knew a few bloody lines. That boy. He knew a few melodies. Yeah. And that old Brahms is was a bit good and all. Yeah. Uh, and going back to my chicken analysis, you know, there's your chicken: Brahms, Beethoven, Liszt, Mendelssohn. These guys wrote pure melody. That's just pure melody. You couldn't. You can't use that sort of melody. That's impossible. Other than in film music or television, you know, no song, no singer could sing a melody as pure as. Um, you know, as as Brahms, or you know, or, or Beethoven. I mean, just just the just the nocturnes as a piece of music are just sensational. And I mean, I've tried to write one of those nocturnes so many times. I mean, Mike Stock always laughs at me. I come in, I go, you say, you've been listening to Beethoven again for Christ's sake, <laughs> because that's what I do. But but now you you've got this uh, classical project that you've been doing, and. In a way, the, the popularity of this crossover classical thing is actually bringing classical music to a lot of people who would never have heard it before. Yeah, the, the problem is with the classical things, it's snobbery. There's a lot of snobbery in the classical music section, which there isn't in the pop music section so much. So, um, I mean, we've, we've been doing bits and pieces. Um, but uh, I still want to write, uh, you know... Um, a piece of Beethoven, it's never going to happen. And because it's never going to happen, I'm going to get away with it by writing it into pop songs. But it's those classic do 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 It's just that... It's, it's just... It's just how you do that in a pop song. And, of course, you have to do it in a pop song. Because if you don't, it doesn't work. It's got to have that Beethoven intensity. When we wrote... Um, uh, Banana Rama. I always remember writing Banana Ramas, um, which went on to be a big hit f- uh, for Steps. Last thing on my mind. Writing that was probably the only time we ever acted as real songwriters, as such, where we actually said we have to write a song. And I remember we wanted. I had come up with this concept of that we would do six tracks, and Bjorn and Benny would do six tracks, and we call the album Abba Banana, and. <laughs> The task was that Bjorn and Benny had to write like Stock Aitken Waterman, and Stock Aitken Waterman had to write like Bjorn and Benny. And I remember we sat down and we, instead of writing Bjorn and Benny, right, you know, we went straight to European music 
and we went straight to Mozart. And we went, what they're actually writing is mid-European classical music. That's what they're writing. It's mm. Mozart. Mm. So if you listen to Last Thing on My Mind, it is pure Mozart. And, of course, everybody says it sounds like ABBA. Of course it sounds like ABBA, but it's more Mozart than it is ABBA. It's just when you record it like ABBA, it's suddenly not Mozart, it becomes ABBA. But mm. Last Thing on My Mind was us listening to ABBA and going, no, you can't take this because this isn't the chicken. Actually, the chicken is, is Mozart. So let's get, you know, all the, you know, the Einer Klein and Nack music out. Let's go and get that out. Let's nick Einer Klein and Nack music. Mm. And, of course, you can't nick it because it's impossible. But what you do is you take the way those melodies... It's just Mozart. You get four girls or three girls to sing it. Don't sound like Mozart or sound like Abba. That's great. But that's what it was. I mean, and then that was the only time ever we sat down and said. This melody must do this. Where does this melody come from? Ah, it comes from Mozart. Dig out on the clone and that music, lads. <laughs> Great. Amazing stuff from one of the most prolific hit makers of all time, Pete Waterman. And if you want some more amazing stuff, subscribe to Radio Richard so we can keep bringing you this great content. Thank you.